Holy interview, citizens. Hi, this is Burt Ward Robin from the TV series Batman. You're listening to Then Is Now podcast. Wowie zowie, citizens. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You can find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television, and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash Haven Podcasts and patreon.com slash then is now podcast. Enjoy. What kind of a sick school is this? Things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love the smell of in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I've got a crap on your deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have a hole. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Come on to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We are on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to another amazing episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. 
This episode is the first with my frequent guest co-host, who is now my permanent co-host on Then Is Now, filmmaker Chris Esper. Glad to have you on board, Chris. Glad to be back as always. Awesome, awesome. Now, folks, if you haven't had a chance to check out our special Then Is Now Filmmaker series, which is an exclusive show you can only get on Patreon, you need to. Chris has been a major driving force behind this new series, and we've been recording some amazing interviews for the past several months. Uh, Chris, do you want to tell the folks about some of the incredible guests that we've had on there so far? Oh, sure. So uh, we, we've had uh, the uh, very funny uh, David Mish, who, of course, was responsible for such classic shows as Mork and Mindy and Duckman, among many others. And uh, we've, had, uh, we've had the great uh, S.S. Wilson, who has been responsible for movies such as Tremors, Short Circuit, and uh, many others. Uh, and we've also had um, John Masari, who, of course, did the score for was it a speed in time and kill a clown from outer space? So that's just a few of many pretty incredible guests of uh, Fred Olin Ray. So yeah, we have had some pretty awesome guests. Yeah, yeah. So we, if, folks, we just wanted to make sure if you want to listen to this new show, check out our Patreon page at patreoncom podcast. So now we've got a wonderful new guest on our show today. On this being the regular Then Is Now podcast. So class is officially in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good. Sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance oh. bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, so. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go! Play and have fun now! Folks, joining us today is a man who served in the U.S. Air Force, was a firefighter, and who has enjoyed being scared by hundreds if not thousands of horror movies so much that he's turned it into a career. He's shared his knowledge of horror on countless podcasts as well as written for such magazines as Medium Chill and Evil Speak. He's also lectured at Webster University in the College of Idaho and performed his live show, My Horror Manifesto, in New York City and various horror conventions across the U.S., He's the host of the Hellbent for Horror podcast, which has been nominated four times for the much-coveted Rondo Award for Best Multimedia Horror Site. The show explores all things horror across books, film, comics, and music, and was described by director Guillermo del Toro as well-researched, articulate, and entirely absorbing. His new book, Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy, has also been nominated for a rondo, and it chronicles his journey as a fan of horror films and fiction in a way that we don't often see in other books that are dedicated to the development of the genre. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show S.A. Bradley. Thanks so much for having me on. This is wonderful. And thank you for the kind words. <laughs> well, awesome. We're so glad to have you here. So, uh, <laughs> Scott, can I call you Scott? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I use S.A. Uh, as uh, the nom de guerre, I guess. And uh, I have that uh, for the trolls can attack S.A. Leave poor Scott. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so can you tell us about your journey to becoming a podcaster and author? And how did, how did you end up doing this? 
Oh my goodness, uh, it's a it's a long uh, process, but I, I can encapsulate it a little bit. Uh, I uh, grew up uh, kind of a scared kid, and then I found uh, horror movies uh, that were kind of crazy that helped me uh, get through uh, some of the hard parts of uh, childhood. And uh, I was able to find friends in that way as well. So I kind of got a community out of it. And then, you know, you grow up and I was in the Air Force and uh, I was uh, at a fire station in Pease Air Force Base, New Hampshire. And uh, I was known as the horror guy. I still had, uh, you know, I was a metalhead, I was a punk rocker and I was uh, a horror guy. And so uh, we were all a little bit wild. And uh, we all had this thing that was called born again hard. And it was this idea that we were unshockable, right? Because we're going into fires and going through all this stuff, being adrenaline junkies. <laughs> and uh, so they would say, get us the worst horror films that you can. And so I would go to the video store and uh, this is back in the days of the video store and get a couple of VHS <laughs> tapes uh, and <laughs> go through all the classics. And I, I got a good reputation when I brought uh, John Waters' Pink Flamingos. That was the one that really got him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know having having that kind of thing was great uh and then i uh got into the the regular world again and i a little bit of a drifter at, at a certain point i was one of those folks that didn't quite acclimate immediately to civilian life when i got out and uh, everything kind of irritated me so i just kind of withdrew and once again horror kind of came to my rescue i got in slowly but surely working at a video store i walked into a video store in stores connecticut or yeah i think it was stores and uh, they had great directors on the wall and in that were your normal guys hitchcock and Truffaut. and then all of a sudden i look and there's carpenter and cronenberg and i'm like this place rocks nobody puts these guys on the same they might have a a little table like at thanksgiving the little kids table but they're not going to put them up in the great directors pantheon so i talked to the fella uh and by the time four hours went by he said i think you should have a job here you could talk to people about movies you could be the referencer you can help us uh order movies that are necessary so i was kind of like pre-tarantino tarantino in that way uh and then uh you know, I was away from it for a long period of time. I got out of that. Uh, I worked in Silicon Valley. Uh, I was a construction worker, all this different stuff. Uh, and what I found was that I was not surrounded by people who were in, interested at all in the kind of things that I was interested in. And I did really well uh, working in Silicon Valley. I was a headhunter. I went after people in different companies, software developers. So it was high risk, all that wonderful stuff. But after about a decade, I found myself really feeling like uh, my soul was gone. I just felt empty. And uh, I uh, was telling my <laughs> yeah. wife about that and she was tired of me being empty. And she said, get your ass somewhere to have fun get on a plane you like horror why don't you do something and it was that moment when i kind of realized that i had used this voice which is a very persuasive voice at times uh for other people's passions for a decade and none of them cared what i thought and they paid me well to not care what i thought and all of a sudden that wasn't good enough and so i was like i need to go to a convention so there was a halloween 1978 halloween reunion in chicago and i just got in a plane from san francisco to chicago didn't know anybody went alone and i just went there to talk 
I didn't care if I got one autograph. I didn't care if I bought any memorabilia. I wanted to find the freaks. I wanted to find the people that I could sit there and start talking about uh, Lucio Fulci and they would know what I was talking about. And they wanted to talk about it. And I found this group of people, you know, sitting in a lobby where everybody else was having beers and there's just these black shirted guys in the corner. And I walked over and went, well, you guys talking movies? And uh, they said, yeah, sit down. <laughs> and they started, you know, quizzing me, you know, to see what my, my sea legs were like. And I, I just <laughs> mowed them over. And uh, it was like, that was what I was hoping for. And we stayed up till dawn. And they said, you need to follow these conventions. You need to get to this one in Cleveland, Cinema Wasteland. And then you need to go to this one. And so I started becoming a staple at those places. I found my tribe. I found what was really exciting me. So I left my job uh, and I said, uh, oh, I don't know if I can make any money. I, I still don't know if I can make any money at any of this. But, uh, but I said, I'm just going to try <laughs> to put my voice out there and see what happens. And Hellbent for Horror was kind of like a dying man's desire to get all of his experiences written down somewhere uh, to be lost in a dusty library somewhere, but at least it's out of me. And that was one of the things that helped me want to also write the book was I wanted to be uh, the person that wasn't a hoarder. Like there's two different types of fans, right? There's the hoarder, the gatekeeper, everything has to go their fucking way. And then there's the, the ambassador, and the ambassador is the person who goes, listen, I know I'm old, right? <laughs> Every movie that I like is older than you. But you know what? <laughs> I want to learn from you what's cool now. And I want to tell you why what I watched was cool. Let's talk. And I find that that's the, the fun thing. What I find is that the younger uh, generations actually are more open because they've been around more openness. Uh, you know, they're with streaming and stuff like that. I mean, I used to have to go to Boston or I would have to go to San Francisco or New York City to find some crazy Asian Cat 3 horror films. You can get on Amazon and find them and stream them now. And yeah. that's not a problem. That's actually pretty damn cool because the people who are not real fans aren't going to want to watch those anyway. They'll watch one and go, fine, I'm done. But then there's going to be the person that's like me and probably like you folks. Uh, you're going to find the person who uh, is like, I need to know what other thing this actor did. I need to find what this other director did. What movie was like yeah. this? Can I find something like this? And that's what sent me down the rabbit hole and saved my life when I was in my early teens uh, and even younger. Uh, you know, it was the public library for me and, and reference books. But now it can be Amazon and all the different streaming services like Shutter and Tubi. You know, those those two great resources for horror films, actually. So super long answer to a real simple question. <laughs> but uh, that's that's how it goes with me sometimes. I'm like Kevin Smith. You ask him one question and the whole thing's done. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's awesome. No, uh, that's do, totally. Do you remember funny. your first horror movie that you saw where you were like, yeah, you know, this is what I want to write about and talk about uh, in my future? Oh, yeah. Uh, so. It's funny. It's not the first horror movie. I call this the first kiss. I talk about that on my show and in the book. <laughs> the first kiss with horror is the, the, the horror that you found for yourself. So like for me, I was a scaredy cat kid. I would get scared at everything. We watched a movie with Gary, uh, Clark, uh, Cary Grant called Charade. 
mm-hmm. and there was a dead body in a in a bathtub and that <laughs> dead body in a bathtub haunted me for a week right <laughs> so my dad was like enough of this shit this kid is scared of everything so i had basically court appointed har my dad was my professor uh, or my parole officer and he told me what i could watch so i ended up with a steady diet of giant bug movies right and 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 the thing from another world you know movies <laughs> that were his movies so they weren't mine so the horror movies that I liked at first right. were nostalgic moments with my dad that I could deal with. But the movie that got me, that stung me, was one I wasn't even supposed to be watching. And uh, uh, my first kiss with horror, and why I call it first kisses, not all first kisses are great, right? <laughs> Some of them are really fucking awkward. Uh, but you, you still find that you want to have another one, right? It's just very deeply impacting, and it changes your life, and it corrupts you in a wonderful way. And so uh, Har did that with me. And the first movie was a real esoteric one. Uh, it was Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now from 1974. Starred oh, okay. Julie Christie ah. and Donald Sutherland. And it's still the first five minutes of that movie is some of the most horrifying, gripping stuff that you'll see. He was, uh, uh, Nicholas Rogue was like Christopher Nolan before there was Christopher Nolan. He loved puzzle pieces in films, making uh, a nonlinear time part of the the storyline. And so I'm a kid. I have no freaking clue. Every movie looks the same from the 50s, right? Big, bright lights. It's black and white. People walk into frame. People walk out of frame. Everybody's working together. And this movie has handheld stuff, lens flare, shaky camera, weird music, nudity, death of children you know all this stuff and i'm terrified and i have a nightmare (laughs) for three nights in a row but it becomes this thing that i can't shake and i need to see the movie again and i won't tell my dad what i saw because the reason i saw it was uh we were one of the families i back in the early 70s home box office came from new york it was called the green the green (laughs) channel i think and they wanted to branch out, see if it would be something, you know, that people would pay for. And paying for TV was stupid, like paying for bottled water was at one point. Right. And so uh, <laughs> people were like, cable, I'm going to pay to watch what I can get for free. And it's like, no, you're going to watch un- uncut movies without any commercials for free. That's how you are for a price. That's how you're going to do it. So in the early right. home box office, they just had feelers out to all these different areas neighborhoods and uh, wilkesbury scranton area of pennsylvania was one of the picked areas that we would be pilot families so they put it in the box and it would just be on for like eight hours a day and they put anything on i mean it didn't matter what time of day or anything like that whatever <laughs> it was was on and my parents were going through uh well, they weren't telling me they were going through a divorce but they were going through a divorce and i could just feel that something was really fucking wrong so i was just put in a room and I'm watching this show and on comes don't look now middle of the day my family's nowhere in sight they're gone and I'm in the house and I see this thing and I'm in shock I walk outside now I don't get it at the time as a kid but I got the emotions that this was answering a question that was in my head it was I had a dark thought in my head that I couldn't scratch and horror allowed me to scratch it. And that dark thought was, my parents will let me down. My parents will not protect me. My parents will let me die. That's yeah, what man. I was feeling through a divorce, right? And so that movie, that's something I could have never said out loud. It was nothing I could share with friends. It's nothing I could even articulate, right? 
And that's what I think yeah. horror does. Horror works like music. Horror goes for the scratch that or it scratches the itch that's there that you can't deal with. You can't even tell people why you're feeling what you're feeling. It goes for the emotion. When you're listening to a song, you're feeling it first, then you can analyze it. And I think the same thing happens with horror films. Mm. You can analyze it afterwards, but you feel it first. And I think that art normally does that. And we sometimes want to make it seem like, oh, analyzation is too brainy or, oh, they're stupid movies. You don't have to analyze them. No, 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 no. They serve a purpose. I wouldn't say that they have the same purpose as something else and something else does not have the purpose of horror. Horror is the place that you can be, you know, politically correct if you so wish. Uh, but you're exercising a demon. You're not, you know, giving a demon a medal for being a demon. And I think, right. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where uh, I, I tell people, you know, horror isn't there to share half its sandwich with you at, at gym class or at, at rest, recess, you know, it's, it's not there for that. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to get that shadowy stuff that's in you released. And that's right. why I went to right. punk and metal shows. That's why I sweat and left blood on the, on the dance floor. Uh, that's why I did crazy things like jump into quarries up in Maine, you know, all of that stuff, <laughs> all these little adrenaline pits, right? And horror allows me a safe handshake with that. And so my first one, I didn't know all this was going to happen with me, but that's the, the start of it was this weird, esoteric, arty horror film. Yeah. Who would, who would have thunk? That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm going to have to revisit that yeah. one. Now, my first film, and I will never forget, I have vivid memories of this, two years old. 1972, backseat of my parents' car at the drive-in, and we saw yeah. uh, the Amicus Anthology film Asylum with Peter oh, Cushing. Oh, so great. And the, the scene I remember from that movie was the from the short piece where uh, the woman's husband was chopped into bits, and the bits mm -hmm. were wrapped in meat paper, and they started <laughs> moving around. Yep. And I never forgot that, and my mother and I couldn't remember the name of the movie, so for years after that, we called it Chopping Heads. Oh, remember ah. when we saw Chopping Heads? So I've had a lifelong love affair with horror movies. Um, I was terrified right up until my teens. I think right until John Carpenter's 1982, The Thing. That was the mm -hmm. first movie I wasn't scared at. Although I still get scared in movies. But, mm -hmm. but I kept coming back to horror. It's funny. I never really thought about it the way you just explained it. Because, because no matter how scared I would be, how I'll, you know, I would get nightmares at night or whatever... I, I would still go see the movies with my parents. I'd still watch them on TV. I would hide when the, the I Love New York commercial with Dracula came on, and then I'd come back in the room. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was alive when The Exorcist was in the movie theaters, and I was old enough to, to hear about it and know about it, but not old enough to go see it. They had radio uh, commercials for The Exorcist at that time on AM. And I would be in the car and all it would be was like the exorcist. And then they'd have like Reagan going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that freaking sound, I was like on the floor in the back of the car going, oh, no, no, no. Sure. That the devil's wor working its way downtown, right? <laughs> it's That's going so from funny. house to house every night. It's possessing another kid. You know, it was that, that kind of brain that I had. And I love right. that you bring up Amicus, which is great. Uh, a movie that I had like that was Theater of Blood. Vincent Price. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. The one, uh, the scene that stayed with me was when they cuts the critic's head off while his wife is in the bed with him. Yeah. And they like put the lipstick on his neck, the dotted line, and then his head <laughs> comes off. And I was so 
repulsed and terrified by that. And, it, you know, it's a comical film, right? It's gory, but it's funny gore. Right. And that was one of the movies where I realized, you know, things could be seen differently as an adult. And you talking about the drive-in is great because the drive-in is one of those great corruptors as well. You never knew. Oh, yeah. It was always like, like back in the day when you were an album collector and you'd go to like Nuggets and you'd, yeah. you'd get a, a, a brown paper bag that said albums, $5. You had right. no fucking clue what was in it but you'd grab it anyway yeah. and you'd get like one or two great albums. And then you'd have Frank Yankovic's magic flute. And you'd be like, ah, fuck. Yeah. All right. You got Frank. Yankovic's magic flute. But, I may even have that in my collection. <laughs> and, and drive-ins were just like that. You know, you'd go like the dusk to dawn show and you'd go, Oh, we're going to watch five movies all night. And the first movie would be something that you knew. The second movie would be like damn near porn. The third would be an after school special that they just put yeah. on there. And then, and then they'd have another really good one. And then something that was just weird as hell as the, as the ender, because they figured nobody would be up and my parents would fall asleep and I'd watch and go, yep. wow, <laughs> this is great corrupting shit right here. And, or it'd be one you'd already seen. They just retitled it. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Especially if it was Spanish or Italian right. or an Al Adamson film. Absolutely. Absolutely. Chris, what was your first kiss with horror? I don't think we've ever discussed that on the show. No, I don't think so. Um, you know, I probably say David Cronenberg's The Fly was Ooh. probably was probably one of my first. Um, I because I remember it so vividly that I, my mother was watching it on a television. And I was like, I was like, hey, what's this? And uh, you know, I'm watching it and watching it. And you know, I was more interested as a kid. I was probably maybe ten or eleven years old when I saw it. And I was more interested in the science fiction part of it. I was like, oh, this is. I'm like, oh, this is really fascinating. And then. As it gets gorier and gorier, wow, I got more glued to the television than ever before. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like oh, that happened? Okay. And, uh, but it was one of those movies I would rent again and again because I was just so in, in, intrigued by it. But then, you know, Cronenberg is a whole other genre in of himself. Oh, yeah. With his, mm-hmm. with, yeah. With, his with, you know, I, I dare I say he's a genius, you know, and... Um, so I, I would say that was mine. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. You're starting with top shelf, right? You don't, you don't oh, stop yeah. with the well drinks. You're <laughs> top shelf. Yeah, no, I, I really didn't. I didn't get into the more like VHS kind of horror movies until much later. You know, I kind of, I kind of approach it, you know, from top shelf down <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's funny. I just actually watched Shivers for the first time the other day. That was really That's a good, good one. That that's amazing. That's, yeah. that's an amazing movie. That's, he's the one guy, uh, Cronenberg, we always talk about body horror, right? Yeah. Body transformation, sure. of yeah. course. But he's also one of the few directors that dealt with sexuality, yes. like sex itself, right. not nudity. Like yeah, people say horror movies are full of sex and violence. No, they're full of nudity and violence. The sex is usually unchallenging. It's very straightforward. Keep the teenage boys happy. But everything else that horror does is transgressive. But it's always afraid some, for some reason to go down into sexuality. And Cronenberg was the only guy for the longest time. And I think that's why he was kind of pushed in a corner as this weirdo up in Canada, you know, this brainiac. 
Right. <laughs> but he was always testing us uh, in that transgressive spot, oh, which sure. I think is yeah. where we should go. I think our, uh, you know, we always talk about it like, you know, it's, it's allowing us to exercise these demons and it allows us to have an outlet for our primitive self and all that, but we won't touch sex. Right. right. That's such a strange right. fucking thing to me. Well, like when I was a kid, my parents would always take me to horror movies and my mother would cover my eyes during the sex yep. scenes, but not the violence. <laughs> right. Because sex bad, yeah. violence good, you know? Yeah. That was my dad. We'd go see like, you know, the new uh, Dirty Harry movie and stuff, right? And then he would, he wouldn't even, he would just, you'd hear him in the theater go, close your eyes. <laughs> Everybody around goes, well, he's got a kid. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious you know yeah. you just made me think of this question is um scott is there a, um a horror movie in your adult life that has scared you oh that's a great question there have been a few and it's kind of funny i think it's it's kind of yeah i think that when horror does scare us and when it's effective and when it's really necessary is when it's really pushing buttons we forgot we even had installed in us yeah. And uh, and so for me, I was uh, I don't know if you, you folks know a little bit of my background, but when I was a kid, my family was involved with a fundamentalist cult, Christian cult that believed that the world was going to end in 1975. Oh, wow. And so I was brought up at this really crazy thing that said everything was idolatry everything was uh you know christianity gone mad and the world armageddon's coming to the planet and only people who are thoroughly chased and do these crazy numerology things <laughs> that they were doing uh were gonna make it and so as a kid i'm believing this and this is another reason why horror saved my life because you know mom dad and god seem to be liars to me because 1976 came which meant the bicentennial really sucked but uh the uh the thing was that they talked about demons all the time that anything that you did masturbation looking at nudity looking at too much violence believing in you know superheroes and comic books uh santa claus all these things you are allowing yourself open to demonic possession and when i was a kid there were some people who were like holy rollers in this thing that would say i saw a demon on the bus the other day right and uh, i looked over and had no eyes and i'd be i'm like seven years old hearing this going holy shit yeah and and don't go out in the rain you know because the, the demons are out more in the rain you know you'd hear these weird ass things that were just people with psychoses that were all together in this cult and so um you know I heard all of this stuff. And by the time I got, you know, I didn't believe by 1976, my family stayed in it. So I was kind of stuck in that household until I was old enough to get out. And I, you know, pretty much became an atheist out of the whole thing. And now I don't know where I am. But uh, with all of that said, I watched Paranormal Activity and I went into shock. I watched the movie Frailty with Bill Paxton. Oh, I yeah. went into shock. Uh, both of those spoke so much to my childhood, the damage that was in my childhood. So paranormal activity, it did it like how we used to talk about demons. And I've always wanted to talk to Oren Peely and see if he was in this thing or if he knew someone who was in this thing, hmm. because there was stuff like it all ha happening at night, but then her standing there going, oh my God, I think it's with us and her hair gets pulled yeah. back It kind of. That was maybe the scariest thing that I had seen in a while. The movie was so smart because it made, it was like pure cinema because it just was a square. 
and it let the audience put everything in there. It's like the Kuleshov effect, you know, the editing thing where they used to just have back in the silent days, they had this experiment, this Russian experiment where they just had an actor with a blank face. And then they would mm -hmm. take pictures of like boiling water and a cemetery and a crying baby and they put them in different order. And the face was just expressionless. But then they asked the audience, what, did, what was going on in that person's mind? And they would fill in whatever was needed with huh. their own personal thoughts mm. going, oh, well, he was hungry uh, and the baby's hungry. And the reason is because the wife is dead because that's why the tombstone was being shown. You know, they would fill in with the visual images that were there. So the lack of visual images that were in paranormal activity, you're watching all four corners of that screen. When you're watching that movie, your eyes are never not moving. Right. It is a right. cinematic event in that way. It is truly show us, don't tell us. And so it did that thing where I, you know, I could tell you uh, right now, stack of Bibles, whatever. I don't think that demons are a major problem in the world. <laughs> no, I don't think that this stuff is a thing. <laughs> Too cold for demons. <laughs> yeah. But there is this, there is this deep little spot, this kernel that has never been extinguished inside of my body. That's just been pushed down in there, seemingly forgotten that occasionally is re, uh, reawakened. And that movie reawoke that. And the uh, weird abuse of religious persecution uh, was what I got out of fra uh, frailty. Very yes. much like my dad, very much uh, the kind of things that were happening. I was, I had a younger sister. She was fine with it all because she was just old enough to understand that mom and dad were right. I was old enough to say mom and dad went insane overnight. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and when they showed the kid at school falling asleep, that was me. You know, I was like, I, my whole world's fucking horseshit i don't know what's going on and wow. i didn't know how to articulate that and i would just fall asleep in class so yeah those movies scared me uh there um a lot of times the scares are more on a on a mental level mm. like i'm like wow that's a horrifying thought like the strangers was uh, yes. one that mm. really fucked with me uh i would say funny games did that to me because it was so uh, enraging in in playing with my emotions um martyrs was another one because i had no idea where that movie was going to go and i was like this is the craziest thing i've ever seen it's originality and it's brashness and it's unabashed gore uh shocked me and uh, it, it followed me home yeah so sometimes that's what happens is that the, the fear is more like a slow burn uh than it is like a jump out of your seat terrified but the last one that really got me i would say is paranormal activity i came home and i had to watch uh, sam Raimi's drag me to hell <laughs> that was the only way i get that a palate cleanser <laughs> yeah that was the palate cleanser <laughs> chris what about you is are there any films in your adult life that have terrified you um let's see well I know we talked about it on the show, but like Get Out kind of scared me in the sense of it's more so in its theme than yeah. like, like it wasn't it wasn't it's obviously not a jump scare movie, so it was more right. like in this in the more the sense of like oh my god is this the world that we're gonna be living in or is this the world that we are living in like oh like like oh this is awful, but um, yeah so I, I I would say that that's definitely one that's great that's great I have to say yeah. for me there's three for three different reasons is. The first one was because I remember this being the very first movie. Like, like after, like I said, after I saw John Carpenter's The Thing, I was more fascinated by that movie than scared by it. And so mm -hmm. after that, I wasn't so scared through throughout. You know, watching horror movies, I still you know get scared and stuff. But 
the one that really bothered me, and my friend and I went to see it in a theater in Boston when it came out, and we were so terrified we could barely walk to the car. We were almost too afraid to walk to the car. And that was Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer with yeah. Michael Booker. Ah. It's another great one. Oh, yeah. my God. That just something about that, like especially the scene where him and Otis have the video camera, and you're yes. watching through the camera, watching them kill this couple or torture in, in this couple. Um, it's, it just puts you in there with them. And that was just like, I just had to boil myself afterwards, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's perfect. I mean, that movie, uh, have you ever seen peeping Tom? The, uh, yes. the old yeah, I was literally just going to say, that's another one that like creeped me out. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the, both of those movies, you know, I, I, I talk about Hitchcock as a tease. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the, the inappropriate thing is to call him a cock tease. <laughs> he was always like, <laughs> He was always the guy who uh, uh, took the idea of our vicarious thrill as being voyeurs and kind of pushed it off like, well, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the uh, Peeping Tom and Henry Porcher of a serial killer say, oh, so you like being a voyeur, do you? Right. Oh, here yeah. we go. Right. <laughs> no pretense, no sugarcoating. This is what it is. You know, oh this, is, right. this is completely bare. And yeah. Man, that's something else. Yeah, and ironically, Peeping Tom was released the same year as Psycho, 1960. Yes. And the but but the but what's even more, I guess, sad in a way is that that movie ended Michael Powell's career. Pretty much, right? yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and oh, yeah. to and to me, it is probably just as brilliant, if not maybe more so than Psycho. And I love Psycho. Yeah, you know. I think it's great. I think Peeping Tom is great. I always say that Psycho's fantastic for the last five minutes. They have, yeah. I mean, yeah. and it's and it's a great movie. It's a great movie. It's a great so. movie, yeah. But I, I think that's the reason that I say modern horror actually starts with Night of the Living Dead and not Psycho. Because Psycho hedges its bets. Uh, Hitchcock scares you, knocks over the apple cart, all the stuff that horror is supposed to do in the modern world. And then he goes, well, don't worry. It's not, he's not every kid in town. He's not across the street from you. We have him in jail. It was mommy issues. You know, he explains too much. It, he resets the apple cart. He puts all the apples back and says, you're reasonably safe. Uh, but Night of the Living Dead was the first movie that said, no, old movies resolved stuff. The new movie, the new horror is the world just keeps rolling after the horror starts. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so I think that that was, uh, that, that's the big change between those two movies. And, you know, and I love Psycho, but oh, uh, yeah. uh, I, uh, I always, I have to say that about the whole Simon Oakland thing. It's like, holy shit. Five <laughs> minutes of him standing there telling you that everything that you saw this is exactly why it happened. Here, let me shine a flashlight in every shadowy corner. Oh my God, it's terrible. <laughs> That's funny. Now, the um, the second one that I that scared me. It was not too long ago. I'd say probably 10, 15 years ago. Was the the descent when that oh, first yeah. came out on video? My buddy and I sat on the couch watching it. We screamed like schoolgirls because mm -hmm. <laughs> the whole, the, not even just the jump scares, but the whole premise of being trapped in this cave. Yep. In this claustrophobic environment, it's like, that fucked with me. I was just like, what the fuck did I just see? Oh, yeah. And that's that movie's an homage to a couple really scary movies. It's an homage to The Thing. It's an homage to Alien. And it's an yep. homage to The Shining. You know, all three of those ghostly things are happening uh, inside of that movie. I, I love the story that Neil Marshall told about when they had the first reveal 
of the the killer or the the, the beast. Yeah. Uh, and it's like right behind one of the actresses uh, that they have a steady uh, camera moving back and forth and they just pop a light on it. So that set, they had not seen that set. He had kept the, uh, the, uh, the actresses away from the set and they had not seen the creature makeup. Ooh. So he just had them go on there and say, search. And so they're actually worked up. They're actors first off. They're getting themselves into character. They have no clue what the direction's going to be. They get on this set and they are the camera. And then Neil Marshall just had the actors sneak up behind one of them and turn on the light. So <laughs> that, awesome. that scream that you hear is real. Yeah. And so I, I love that. And I think you can tell. I think that's like the, the scream in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre when Alan Danzinger is hit with the mallet uh, when he sees the, the girl hooked up on the, uh, up on the hook and, uh, and uh, Leatherface comes around, just hits him with a hammer. And he goes, wah! They said yeah. the first time they did it, they, they had to shoot the, the uh, re, re, uh, re, response shot, the reverse shot, uh, because he ran away. The second time... <laughs> The second time they had to hold his belt and pull him down so he wouldn't, he wouldn't replay that. But he's got so shitless scared because he didn't know what uh, Gunnar Hansen was going to look like uh, that uh, he completely lost it. So I think those are two big screams that you can tell just feel visceral, like real. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a great yeah. movie. Yeah, it's so good. Great movie. Now, the third one, and I, I'm just curious to your, you guys' opinion on this because I haven't actually ever talked about it. And it's a film that there are, I really can't say there are any other films that I would never, ever recommend to anyone. There are some films I won't recommend to certain people. Oh, they won't like this kind of movie, you know, that sort of thing. But this movie, I would not recommend to anyone, and it, probably not because it's a bad movie, but because it scared me so much. I, it took me two nights to watch it, and both nights I had nightmares. And this was not very long ago. This was probably like six or seven years ago. And that's The Human Centipede. Oh, dear. That just <laughs> disturbed the shit out of me, and I will never go back to that well. I will not watch the sequels. I'm done with that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that movie is just, I mean, it's, it's a hard watch, to say the least, but it's, it's an act of genius. Tom Six is a genius because people who have never seen, the, the human centipede is in the national discourse. People know that term. It's like Jaws. You know, yeah. you say human centipede. People have never seen it. No, that's a movie I'm never going to see. That's the one where people are like, asshole to mouth. Yeah, I don't need to see that. Right. <laughs> the whole idea, that is an idea that is almost like uh, uh, folk horror. You know, it's, it's like a folk story. Right. Like apples, uh, razor blades and apples. It never really happened. But everybody's like, holy shit, yeah. it happened. <laughs> you know, and so urban legend, it's like an urban legend, but it's real. The movie's real. So that's a super low budget movie made by a one-time film director. And now he's made a couple movies. Uh, but that super low budget thing was actually on Netflix. You could watch it for free on Netflix for a while till they realized what the hell they had. <laughs> and, but I mean, all of that was happening and it's become this thing. It's like nightmare on Elm street and all of this. It's, right. a, it's, it's a term. The human centipede is so much free publicity and he's gotten such a ride from that. So I think it's, it's a disturbing, grotesque, hilarious and unsettling movie i mean there's yeah. a certain level of hilarity yeah. <laughs> to what's being talked about there but it's also so grotesque because the actors are really good right 
and right. they they save a really just and just the idea. I mean, I mean, the idea of the actual you know surgery itself is grotesque. But what gets me is like the knees and the heels, all the transforming that they're doing to these people, the grotesque destruction of joints in the body. Oh my God, it's just the nastiest of. And, of the one scene that still sticks with me, and I still even I laugh out loud at it when he's going, "Feed her!" Oh God! Yeah. Her. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, you know, any other filmmaker would pay to have that. <laughs> yeah. that. That people, all you have to do is say the words "feed her" after the name of the movie, and it's like, holy shit! You got to be kidding me! Oh my God! You know, instant recognition, right? And it might be a rictus of terror, but at the same point, it's instant marketing uh you know it's it's a perfect marketing tool instant mm. uh branding uh, it's so crazy oh, and yeah. yeah there's only oh, a few yeah. are you gonna need a bigger boat you know yeah that's right. a more <laughs> more useful one but uh yeah i just i laugh at in the horror circles and i love that so many people have an issue with that movie that's that's saying something right yeah. That's saying it's also like Cannibal Holocaust, where everybody that I know, we can watch the most nasty films. And in that movie, there's some serious nasty stuff that happens to human beings, but it's the animal cruelty that to a person, we can't watch that movie without saying, listen, I really wish that wasn't in there. And you know, the DVDs even have a setting that you can go past the animal killings. Right. Because yeah. it's real shit, right? It's yeah. real shit. But I think that states something about the horror fan that nobody wants to look at, which is we do understand the difference between reality and fantasy. We do realize that it's just fake blood. We do get that. We don't want to see the real shit. You know, there are some Cobra Venom people that do, uh, but, and they can go have fun with that. But the thing is, when, we, when it comes down to true pain, we don't want it. We want, to, I want to say that the world is a dangerous place, but a horror movie can never hurt me. Right. You know, I, there's some serious shit that's out there and I get to experience that from a distance, a safe distance by watching it in a horror film. Comedies allow me to see a character do things that I want to do, but I'll never be able to do. <laughs> and horror movies let me see a situation that I never want to be in, but I can experience that in a visceral level and feel safe. Yeah. Right. Right. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, 
and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here, your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Stadium. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast, it's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. Well, that's like, you know, I can't watch, you know, movies, not movies, but like, like nonfiction movies, documentaries about surgeries or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, heck, even those commercials about the poor starving kids in another country, it's like, right. I can't watch that. And people are like, well, you watch horror movies. I'm like, yeah, that's fake. This is real. I don't like the right. real. <laughs> right. We have empathy. We are empathy machines. Just yeah. because of what we watch is horror. We, we are the ones that look at what other people won't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. We we can look at the ugly side. We can also look at the wonderful side. But we f- go right at it. Uh, you know, horror is the redheaded stepchild, and it takes the slings mm. and arrows of the mainstream world until the mainstream world needs it. Like Get Out. Yeah. Right. And then they yeah. and then they try to change it from a horror movie to a social thriller or whatever. You know? Right. And that's right. that's that's how they repay horror for being there for them when they need that angst release. Sure. And horror movies are like the, I I always liken them to roller coasters because you know it's it's a thrill ride except you don't have the danger of the roller coaster going off the track. <laughs> you have the safety right. of the right. being on your couch or your bed, or, you know. Yeah. 
I, I like to think that Henry of Portia is a serial killer, though. It's like a, a roller coaster that goes off the rails at the <laughs> when you're rolling into the into the main thing. It's like, That's okay, true. made it through the hills, and then, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, my God. That was terrifying, just trying to get to the car in a back alley of Boston after seeing that movie. We're like, oh, oh, I'll bet. Nice. I'll bet. I remember when that came out. I mean, that was a big deal. That was like a, an X-rated film, an NC-17 film that came out and was reviewed well. Because Man. it was this movie that had no uh, facade. There was no creepy music. Uh, there was no shock value stuff. This was all straight up like a snuff film, right? And I think that's what really hits us about that movie. It feels like you're just a pedestrian. Well, there, there's right no there. more blood in that movie than the original Friday the 13th. And it right. got the X rating simply because of its mood. Yeah. And no other film had gotten an X rating because of mood. Yeah. Actually, there was one other, but it was the cook, the thief, the wife, and her lover. Oh, and that was okay. another one that got an yeah. X rating for that. And that that I call a horror movie. And that's like something that I, if I was ever able to make movies, the thing that I used to say in the '80s was, I want to make a horror movie or a violent movie where all the violence is verbal, and <laughs> we get an X rating for that. It's <laughs> thoughts, thoughts, you get an X rating. That's funny. Just going to put, um, what's his name, uh, Lenny Clark, oh, Lenny Bruce in there. <laughs> yeah, Lenny Clark would be great, too. Yeah. I, just saw, I just saw Lenny Clark in the new Halloween movie. I'm like, what the fuck is Lenny Clark doing? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So, now, you've written some screenplays and, and stories on horror, as well as working on some low-budget independent films when you were in school. Do you want to talk about those a little? Tell us about them. Oh, well, there's not much to really say about them. I mean, they were terrible. That's why you don't know about them. <laughs> I mean, seriously, me doing nonfiction about horror is, is a lot better than me coming up with ideas. Uh, uh, but I, uh, I worked on a, a bunch of low-budget horror movies uh, that were student films. And the thing about, and I'm sure, uh, if, if I remember correctly, Chris, you are a filmmaker, right? Yes. So you know, you know the slings and arrows of it all. Sure. That, uh, yeah. For every one of the movies that makes it, like yours, there's uh, twenty that are still at the lab. They ran oh, sure. out of funding at the lab. Yeah. And they never saw the light of day, and that happened so many times. So I was an AD on a few movies that never got seen. Uh, I was a, a grip on several student films and things like that and it was always fun i loved the excitement of making horror films i loved the excitement of making movies of any sort and uh i i really appreciated uh the amount of work that goes into it and learning the camera and there was something about that science part to the art as well that uh, i always felt was great and it's something that i get a little bit of a hit on now as i'm like a panelist and stuff at conventions or i'm a guest conventions or i'm a vent vendor at conventions the after hours stuff where you realize we're still kind of part of the circus everybody else is going to work we're just going to bed that whole thing is is a really cool feeling uh, and I did, I made a movie in stores, Connecticut, that uh, is 40 minutes long. And I say that it's 20 minutes too long. <laughs> it should have been 20 minutes. <laughs> and it was called let's get dead. And I made it for like 40 cents. And it was, uh, <laughs> it, it, it was kind of before there was natural born killers. It was kind of the idea of natural born killers, but in all honesty, uh, both natural born killers and my movie owe a lot to John Waters, female trouble. Because that was the movie that basically said crime is good and said that, why don't we just the, made the connection between celebrity and serial killer? 
that there's this thing of we worship those that will do the things that we can't do, but we wish we could do. And uh, so his movie, Female Trouble, really hit on that. And that's kind of what I was going for was I made this character named Tom Schrenk, who uh, was in jail and he's being interviewed in jail uh, and talking about how since he was a kid, he wanted to be a serial killer. And he was trying uh, his great, uh, he was trying to find a, a way to become super famous and that all of his friends were just posers who are just punk rockers who thought that his nihilism was just a, a phase like theirs was. And uh, I mean, it's not good, <laughs> but, but I had fun with it. And I love that the people who are in it still are my friends and they, they still show it like on public access in Willimantic, Connecticut or something like that. I occasionally get people sending me things. I just saw your movie and I'm like, oh boy, nobody gets paid for it. I didn't get paid for it. I, I'm glad it's out there and I'm not glad it's out there. Right. Yeah. But uh, it's, 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 it's really bad. And, uh, and I mean, technically bad, all of it. And a couple of screenplays that I wrote were fine, but they weren't great and they weren't, they weren't enough, you know, and I knew it. And so uh, I, I, I'm still thinking of some ideas. I'm thinking about some, some stuff. Uh, everybody asks me now, now, right? Because uh, now I've written a book and I have a podcast. Like, surely you have great ideas for horror movies. And I'm like, yeah, no. You know, <laughs> I, I, I have the same problem just about everybody does, which is I have a great opening. I have a great end. And I don't know what the fuck to do for the next, you know, one hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> it's that hour and 15 minutes is the, the truly formative stuff. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm always, uh, I'm in awe and I love to promote the movies that I see, especially the, the, the no budget ones uh, that really do something different. Uh, I tend to love things warts and all, uh, but I also admit that there are warts. I think there's a big difference between just saying, I love it and you can all go fuck yourself. No, I like to have, I want to have a discourse. I believe that horror is just as valid as any other genre including drama and if it is then i should be able to talk about it the way that people talk about regular films and it should be able to stand the test of that and and so uh you know i will say you know phantasm has some real fucking holes in it but i love the movie and those holes are just part of the fabric at this point oh yeah it's part of it part of the whole deal of why i like that movie so yeah uh that th those were interesting times uh but uh, i'm much better talking about other people's art and making an art form out of discussing what it feels like to be immersed in cinema yes mm. yes and it's funny because uh, you just reminded me earlier i meant to mention it when um uh, chris when you mentioned the fly my parents took me to see that and that was back in the day when they would shut all the lights off in the theater and right. mm -hmm. for whatever reason, we were slightly late, so we walked in at the opening credits, which are mainly dark unless there's words on the screen. And I almost sat on some lady's lap trying to get to a seat. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I remember That's those awesome. times. I remember that. But, yeah. you know, that just reminds me, too, of the – and especially your episode. I think it was 101 where you were talking to the guys that run the Skyline Drive-In. Oh, yes. In yeah. Indiana. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love that episode. I highly recommend, you know, everybody should, first of all, go out and listen to your show because I'm hooked on it now. It's definitely uh, my top favorites now. And um, Thank you. Very kind. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, it's, it's well worth it. And, you know, I really – I love talking about and hearing about other people's experiences, whether they went to the drive-in or they own the drive-in. You know, I have, I have a friendship with the guy who runs the drive-in that's sort of about an hour from me and stuff. I've been trying to get him on the show for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And I just want to talk about, you know, our, our drive-in experiences because I think sure. it, I, that's, there's this whole common denominator 
amongst all of us fans, especially us older ones, not to single you out, Chris, as not being part of that, because I think you're no, like... No, I know. Yeah, you're yeah. right on the cusp, because you remember VHS. I do. So, <laughs> you know, we had drive-ins... We had horror hosts, we had creature features, yep. uh, Famous Monsters magazine, Fangoria magazine, you know, all these things. Whereas today, you get a zillion streaming services with mm -hmm. a zillion movies, and the kids don't know where to begin. And, yep. you know, I for me, it was not only the, the TV shows, but it was the drive-in theater, too. Like you mentioned, the, um, the Dust Till Dawn shows, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love, uh, I love talking about that. Uh, the drive-in, to me... You know, I, boy, where do we start? First off, I'd like to talk to the, the thing about streaming and not knowing where to go. When we were kids, I like to surmise that most of what fandom is in either science fiction or horror comes down to like 10 people. Uh, and it's like uh, for modern uh, 70s, uh, normal mainstream films, the, the golden age of the 70s was really about five critics. What those critics thought everybody else started to agree with because it was right there. But for us, because we didn't have a million places to go, we went to like Starlog or Famous Monsters, right? right? So that's like two or three people. And we, because there's nowhere else to go, we adopt what they love. They're the ones who get to speak about what they love. And then it's like, like I, th I always think about like Fangoria magazine. Uh, Bob Martin, who recently died, I think like two years ago, uh, the editor of Fangoria, he was big into Santos and the Blue Demon. Yeah. He loved Mexican horror wrestling. He loved Dark Shadows. Uh, he loved Kolchak the Night Stalker, which I, of course, did too. But there were a bunch of little weird things like Santos that a guy like me in the coal mines of Pennsylvania would have never known about if it wasn't for Fangoria magazine. And there were a whole bunch of other things that I didn't know about because Bob Martin didn't write about it. Mm. What I needed to do was I needed to go to the library. You know, yep. most of us were rudderless unless we went on that propulsion. So I went to the library and I started looking at reference books and I found who, who did this movie? What is happening there? Those were only written by a few folks, right? We, we were at the cusp of where the wave was starting to grow. The baby boomers really did it. The baby boomers were the first uh, generation that people uh, changed marketing for teenagers, because the, yeah. the parents were staying at home. They're like, fuck, I'm not going out. And the, the kids were doing it. And so you have pop culture finally hitting. The Universal movies like King Kong and the RKO movies like King Kong. Yeah. Universal movies like uh, The Mummy and Dracula and Frankenstein. They're not sure. seen until the horror hosts. And that really starts in the late 60s because you have the shock package that comes out. Right. And that happens because of, uh, well, I'm going to get off fucking track. Here. Anyway, no, go ahead. What, I, what I was basically <laughs> trying to talk to is that we all, we all find structure where we can. And I think the, the newer generation uh, has it, it tough in some ways, but they, uh, they have all this access, but they need to find a, someone who can focus them. So there are probably some influencers out there that are a great focus. Uh, A24 films is probably a great focus for some folks. Uh, Blumhouse might be for others. Mm. Uh, the uh, 
the bloody disgusting films might be for others or the Severin films. Maybe you start there and you work out from there and find out these things. Folks like us are what are important. People who are accessible to talk about what came before and are still watching movies now and not just sitting at home watching the thing for the 500th time. Right. Get out there and see things and, and be able to say, you know, with some, with some seriousness, what you see as similarities and what you see as differences. Uh, but uh, the drive-in is so much fun because it is one of those influencers, right? Those movies that we saw were of a certain type that were not going to make it into cinemas. Those were movies that were, you know, I, like I saw uh, Escape from New York didn't make it into the movies, movie theaters. It played drive-in. Right. That's where yeah. I saw it. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, uh, Carpenter wasn't a blockbuster guy up until, you know, he basically had his career destroyed by the thing. Uh, but, you know, you would see these movies that were a little bit sorted. And what I loved about the drive-in is that it was kind of like a ritual. You're going to this place. You're going to be outside. And I always say that I felt like I was part of the movie camera. Because you get out of the car. Nobody stayed in their car the entire time. You got out. Part of the experience yeah. is hearing the echoey voices coming off of all those speakers. Going past people who are in these little capsules of their cars. But you have the building itself is like a big movie projector. Like a big movie camera. Yeah. And you're walking into it to go to the bathroom or go to the, the, the uh, stand, the, the, the lobby. Or not the lobby, but the concession stand. You're in this place. It's in the middle of a field. <laughs> there's grass everywhere and there's just this big metallic device shooting light into the sky and it always felt like you're in it right i was part of the movie i was part of the experience and i think that's why those movies really grip us we're part of the nighttime you can hear the crickets and stuff we're uh, we're part of the experience that's happening with a drive-in film and it's just so big like i was at the mahoning drive-in the skyline was great, but the Mahoning drive-in, that's the biggest screen I've ever seen. That's like the last CinemaScope screen left. Wow. And you're in there and you're like, holy shit, look at the size of this thing. And so you want to talk about, you know, being immersed in a film. I mean, we have IMAX and stuff, but there's a whole different feel to a drive-in. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to be the quality and stuff of an IMAX, but it's, it's a kind of like that grassroots thing of a group of people coming together around a campfire telling stories. And so there is this feeling of community. There's this feeling of reality. You know, there's a, there's a sterility in my mind of going into a, a, a movie theater that they don't even need a projectionist for because everything is timed, everything's software. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But because I grew up at a time when you, you could see the splices going across right, the screen right. <laughs> and the movie might stop and the guy comes out and goes, fuck it. There's only 20 people in here. I'm just going to give you all tickets because it's going to take us an hour to fix this movie. You know, uh, these things that weren't great, but they were human. You know, those, those yeah. things do yeah. stick with you and they may have disappointed you at the time, but there was something to that uh, where the sound wasn't always right. You could yell focus. You yeah. People yell focus sometimes. <laughs> horns are going off uh and it's not that's one of the things though and i will say that it's not a true quote-unquote cinema experience like i'm not there immersed in the movie only right in a drive-in you're taking much more in it's a ritual there's a whole bunch of little pieces that are moving around on it but i love drive-ins for that 
And it was a place where I got to see some transgressive stuff. And it's funny, one of the things that I love about driving is what I tell people, you know, like people will say, oh, movies are too political and too this. And that. I said, they've always been, my friend. You just happen to be on the shit end of the stick at this point for some reason. Who knows why? But all the way back, these movies, especially exploitation movies, they lived and died on what was driving people crazy at the time. So when you're looking at the drive-in movies, like, uh, oh, my God, I'm trying to think of a good one. Uh, oh, my God. Well, oh, um, what was it? Race with the devil. Race with the devil. Yeah. There was so much fear of hippies and there was so much fear of devil worshiping and the people who were in the woods at that time, that movie is all about what people were afraid of in 1976 that yeah. you won't read in history books. But the thing is all the exploitation films, all the horror films, they need to know what scares us. They need to know what makes us anxious. What's scary now may not have been, uh, or what's scary in 1930 may not be scary now, but it was scary then. And it was because it was talking about what was this unconscious anxiety that was happening. I love what Toby Hooper said about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and his other films. People are like, well, what do they fucking mean? And he goes, you know, sometimes you make a movie and it takes 20 years to figure out what it's really about. And that's because <laughs> they work on an unconscious level, right? Yeah. You're part of the world. You may not know why this is a good idea. You know, you may not know why Saw came out of nowhere and Hostel came out of nowhere. I do. Abu Ghraib happened like the year before. And we had this whole fucking thing about torture. Torture is in everything, right? Torture was in Congress being battled. Were we torturers or weren't we torturers? And we kind of hedged our bets on that. Well, maybe there's a reason that we can do some waterboarding. Next thing you know, we got movies where people are tied up, getting their hands and arms cut off because we, whether we supported or we didn't support what was going on, our anxiety was through the roof on that fucking shit. And all of a sudden, it became part of what we were talking about. Invasion of the Body Snatchers back oh, in the yeah. 50s. It's all about communist Red Scare, or it was about McCarthyism. Oh. And I love about the, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it's so vague about it that it doesn't. It keeps the subtext below the text the yeah. entire time, that you can read it either way. And so uh, I think that all the really trashiest of the, the exploitation movies and the drive-in movies, they speak the most truth about what we were scared of. The back in the 20s in the silent movies, you had people who were disfigured, right? All the bad guys were like Lon Chaney with his legs tied behind his back. Or he had no <laughs> arms, you know, all this shit. Because you had all these people coming back from World War I that were missing arms and legs and eyes. And they were forced, the government forced them to wear masks and stuff because it upset people. Right. be reminded of the disgusting things that were happening you also had movies about white slavery that never existed <laughs> but it was a huge deal in the drive-in circuit right so i love the drive-in because it tells naughty truths that we don't want to look at right and i think that's one of the things that horror is great at and there's something to be said about just the experience under the stars especially on a nice night watching a movie oh, yeah and you or know, a rainy night yeah <laughs> No, no. For me, though, like because they started transmitting the audio on FM frequency back in the mm -hmm. '80s. So I remember yeah. having my Walkman in the back seat of my parents' car. I think we went to see like there was like they were playing two or three Friday the Thirteenth movies, and then Carpenter's oh, wow. The Thing. And but it was a four-screen driving, so I would just tune the dial over to the other screen, see what was going on. I watched um, uh, what heavy metal. Oh, <laughs> well, wow. My parents had no idea. I was just looking out the other window <laughs> and listening to that movie. 
And <laughs> that's funny. You know, and it's progressed in such a way that it's like I've I always consider myself, even though it's not a real term, a professional drive in goer because when I go, I take the family, we pack up the wagon, I've got everything. We've got lawn chairs, a boom yep. box, a speaker attached to that, mm-hmm. um, yep. you know, blankets, pillows. I've got an air mattress for the back and for the kids and the pillows and stuff. And With mosquito stuff. Yep, anti-mosquito <laughs> stuff, although I, I, the ones we go to, for some reason, the people must spray because I've had hardly any. I'm going to say in the last 10 years, I've had hardly any issue with mosquitoes. Oh, wow. That's great. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but, I mean, that's like a, a whole fun. I mean, where else can you go for, you know, between 15 and 25 bucks and take the whole family and see two movies? Most of the time, they're first-run films nowadays. But yeah. you can also go to these, like like you said, like the Mahoning Drive-In and the Skyline and yeah. um, the Riverside Drive-In. I know the guys that run the, the Drive-In Ghouls Monsterama over there, and that oh, was an wonderful. amazing thing. Yeah, that's, one, that's what I think. Uh, I don't think that uh, first-run film kind of thing is viable for uh, drive-ins. I, I don't know if you, uh, I think a hybrid's kind of the best way to go, but I think the drive-in experience truly is something that comes from these older films, these rarefied films, having theme nights. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the, that's a thing where you bring it in and you, you extrapolate on the idea that it's not just the movie. Right. And if you're going to go see a first run film, it's going to be like, shut up. I need to hear what fucking Nolan's saying about time travel again. For the 800 <laughs> <fucking> <laughs> and, but uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in a different concentration zone. Than if you're watching Satan's Cheerleaders, right? <laughs> you can have fun with that movie, and you can experience everything. And I think that's what the Mahoning and the Skylight do so well. Skyline does uh, uh, really fun R-rated, crazy kind of uh, horror things. Like I went to see a two-night uh, thing on Devil movies. Oh uh, yeah, uh, Demonic Possession. Yep. So that was ten movies over two nights. And it had this whole feel of like, you're accomplishing something to stay awake through them all. And yet you're watching them and then you're kind of walking away. I've seen Rosemary's Baby 300 fucking times. I'm going to (laughs) go talk to people and you sit and talk and the movie's playing above you. Yeah, that's okay. You know, and that's part of the fun. And then the Mahoning turns it into a a festival. When I was there, they, they have a guy who dresses in costume that's themed they have a theme uh that the two movies that they'll play that night or if they're playing like a dust of dawn there there are five movies there's a thematic reason for them doing what they're doing and they're they're kind of the stars as well the people who work there they're into it and they they decorate the place and they do it all on a minor budget but they have most of the people who do the stuff there are volunteers they are and that's what i jump to i follow and respond to passion and that's why i did shows about the drive-in stuff it wasn't that oh i just want to talk about drive-ins it's what else uh, is there happening that uh, is uh, people are still passionate about like i did a thing on horror hosts and the thing that interests me the most is having horror hosts now because horror hosts had a reason to exist there was a a point to why they were there in the 70s there was dead air right there was a time when things were quiet (laughs) <laughs> and there was money being lost and you know uh, universal was losing money and these movies are just in a safe somewhere and these tv stations they were affiliates and uh, the big three abc nbc and cbs would only give them prime time stuff and they had to fill everything else up with local origination and then you had 
the same thing happened all across the country all at once. Hey, let's get the fucking weatherman to put on a cape right. and uh, watch these movies on a Friday night or a Saturday morning. Yep. And it became part of our, our youth our adolescents and it became a uh, he they became our guides but then everything changes right we don't even have real tv anymore that's streaming there's satellite there's there's something on all the time there's no sign off there is no the star spangled banner at the end of the right. night like you know, that's yeah that's long gone right yeah so why do we have horror hosts they have nowhere to go and yet it's such an amazing thing. They were These folks were so transfixed by the people that they grew up with that they need to emulate out of time, out of mind to do this thing. And they, they all have to do the same thing. They all go to public domain films. That's why you see everybody does Night of the Living Dead right. uh, because it's the one good public domain film. And then you have, you have all this uh, stuff where they go to drive-ins and they'll do it or they'll go to movie theaters or they'll go to uh, uh, live performances. And that's where the horror host lives now. Uh, you could see them slowly getting eked out in the 2000s when there used to be local origination still on the local stations in like San Francisco and Oakland. And then that slowly gets taken up by infomercials of some sort or, uh, you know, the Golden Girls, whatever it might be, late at night. There's right. no late at night anymore. People work at night, right? Yeah. So there is no late at night. You know, the world has completely changed, but there are still horror hosts. And to me, that's all about passion and insanity. Just like buying a, a drive-in now. You don't buy a drive-in to make money. Right. <laughs> you buy a drive-in <laughs> to watch the movies you want to watch and maybe make a, a, a penny here and there. Yeah. But nobody that I know that's running a drive-in is like, oh, yeah, this is my fourth house. And so, no, they're not there. Right. They, live, they live near the drive-in most of the time, right? Yeah. And yeah. I used to host horror movies as a character called Uncle Death. And now uh, ah. Chris and I are working on a, another project. Do you want to tell him about that, Chris? Yeah, sure. We, um, so we're working on this uh, sort of horror host show called uh, The Other Side of Midnight. It's exactly, <laughs> and it's exactly, it's exactly, exactly like, as you described, you know, we did do Night of the Living Dead at some point. Uh, you know, um, uh, Rigor is doing the editing. I'm shooting it. And uh, a couple of our friends are like, you know, uh, uh, we, there's this uh, one uh, girl that we know. She's the host. And then she has these two, like, puppet characters that look like Muppets. Uh, they're this <laughs> There are these two monsters. They talk about the movie and they introduce it. They interrupt it and then they, you know, conclude it. It's a lot of fun. Really, a lot of fun to do. Yeah, oh, it's yeah, a lot of fun. I'm so glad yeah. Spanguli's still Spanguli is still doing it out there. You know, like yeah, Doctor Gore Duvall is still going oh, yeah? in DC. Yeah. And we had um yeah. in Boston, we had a show called Creature Double Feature, and we didn't actually have a host. Yes, we just had an announcer that would come on in be be at the mm -hmm. beginning of the first movie and in between the films. And it wasn't until uh, I'm going to say between 82 and 85 somewhere, they ended the show and they, they syndicated Son of Spanguli. And that opened my eyes to horror hosts. I really didn't realize uh, that was out there. And then after that came Elvira and, you know, uh, the, what's his name? Yeah. Commander USA. Joe and, Bob yeah, Briggs. Joe Bob. Right. And yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. it's like that to me is hand in hand. The horror hosts and the drive-ins and the magazines, they're all hand in hand to like shaping my youth. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, I, and that's what's great. And that's why fandom is as fandom is. Uh, we, we all kind of got we all had the same patchwork, right? The same patchwork quilt. Uh, the same design was there where we took it. We went in different directions, maybe. But uh, 
those were the formative pieces, uh, the, the magazines. Like for me, my dad was functionally illiterate. He wasn't a great reader. So he thought that books and reading was homework. So he let me go to the library. He didn't realize he opened the doors to the first corrupter that I had because books get way more graphic than any movie yeah. can get away with. <laughs> And so, you know, all of that, uh, you know, and then I find the, the reference books and, you know, the drive-in, you know, parents, parents are funny. At least my parents were funny and, and people of that time, they're like, ah, it's a kid thing. Who cares? It doesn't matter. I don't need to have my alert on. You know, I don't have to worry. And yet, no, no, drive-in movies, they're pretty dirty. Don't you remember when you were a, you were a teenager? You know, uh, but parents let their, their guard down. The horror host is the same thing. Uh, the, the, uh, the corruptors walk right in the front door without the right. parents even knowing the TV <laughs> on late at night. Right. And you're able to watch these movies that they'd be like, why are you watching this in, in San Francisco? They had uh, yes. Bob Wilkins and uh, creature features. And he was, uh, he became infamous for showing twins yep. of evil uncut. <laughs> And so everybody's like, titties, there's titties on TV. <laughs> and so it's like, talk about having this whole corruption that happens. Uh, the, the guy that I grew up with was Uncle Ted and Uncle Ted's ghoul school in Wilkes-Barre, Scranton. And uh, he was just, a, he was a, uh, a magician, a failed magician in a fez with a big bushy, uh, what's his name? The guitarist. Uh, well, I can't remember. Anyway, big bushy mustache, kind of like the bass player in the oh. Muppets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Animal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he had that kind of look and uh, he was just terrible. They would always cut away to a rubber rat or something while he was trying to, you know, make it so that it was a sleight of hand. And he was just a dopey guy, but he was actually a good hearted fella and he was just fun. So we made fun out of them. You know, there was a time when we adored them. Then we got a little bit older and we made fun out of them. Then we got a little bit older and we were nostalgic for them. And I think that that happens a lot with our horror hosts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, folks, we had such a great time talking to podcaster and author S.A. Bradley that we went on for almost three hours. So we're going to break it here, and this is going to be part one, and we'll pick it up next week with our awesome interview with this great guy. If you want to send your feedback about this episode or any others, please email us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now Podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And while you're there, please click on the Patreon and Public links to get some exclusive stuff and help support the show. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed.
Madness Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.